Ironing to do. Dishes too. Nerves in a bunch. What's for lunch? Welcome back for another meaty episode, number five, of Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago-based audio podcast by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning journalist and video maker for the Chicago Reader, the Chicago Sun-Times, Serious Eats Chicago, and other juicy, tender publications. This time I'll talk to Michael Ruhlman, the food writer's food writer, who has a new edition of his book Charcuterie Out. We'll talk about the craft of making food and talking about it, too. Then, speaking of cured meat, I take a road trip with my kids to Kentucky to meet the ham lady, Nancy Newsom Mahaffey, who takes us inside where she makes some of the best country hams in America. And I'll talk with Matthias Murgis of You Show about how, as he puts it, a guy from Charlie Trotter's went from being very serious to very not serious. That's all in this Airwaves Full of Bacon, the meat and potatoes of podcasts. Michael Ruhlman wrote the French Laundry Cookbook with Thomas Keller and inspired a generation of chefs to make food with precision and thoughtfulness. Michael Ruhlman wrote The Mind of a Chef and helped launch our national interest in how chefs think about things. Michael Ruhlman wrote Charcuterie with Brian Polson and got lots of us making cured meats in our basements. And now Michael Ruhlman has a new book, The Book of Schmaltz, about the virtues of chicken fat, to go with his other new book, which is a revised version of charcuterie. Ruhlman came to the Chicago restaurant Belena a couple of weeks ago on a book tour for the last of these, and talked to an audience of mostly chefs about the craft of food. Afterwards, I got to sit down with him to talk about the craft of food writing for the reader. This is an extended version of our chat. My first question, do you take any credit, or blame, for having launched our modern-day chef culture? I entered it just when it was taking off. I, I basically, the way I see it is, is I, you know, I caught the wave at the perfect moment. Uh, our culture was just, just starting to embrace cooking and chefs. They weren't so famous that my book was obvious as it would soon become obvious. I was the first person to write about a document about what culinary school was all about. Uh, so I just recognized something just as it was just as as it was beginning to happen i liked it in the first place i'd been cooking all my life too so it was just a natural if i did anything it's just to perpetuate it along with a number of other people like bourdain um like thomas keller like rachel ray for that matter emerald lagasse was just starting when i was starting so many people mention french laundry cookbook and to me, I mean, I, the number of things I've successfully cooked from it is fairly short, but the number of times that I've read some of these parts or said, oh, this, this thing about killing rabbits and, you know, and all of that, um, it's just very influential on the mentality, I think, of a lot of people, even, you know, whether they're professional or hackers in the kitchen like me. How did you approach that versus, you know, cookbooks that were out on the market then? Um, Thomas, as is customary with uh, that extraordinary man, um, 
knew from the outset that he didn't want a cookbook writer, that he wanted a writer-writer. Um, and he, through what I think, <laughs> at least for me, is grace, um, we found ourselves talking. And I remember when I first went out there and I was very sort of like, let's just see if we get along kind of introduction. I kept saying, in this cookbook I'd like to see, or excuse me, if you're, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get the job, etc. And he'd say, will you stop with that? You're doing the book. Um, and I knew it anyway. I, just, I wanted to be respectful. But we got along from the beginning. Um, he cared about the same things I did. And I, it, as it turned out, I could begin to intuit really what mattered to him. And so I had just learned all the fundamentals of cooking um, and then was out with this practitioner of one of the best practitioner of these fundamentals um, who is also one of the most aware, thoughtful, not chefs, but people I've ever encountered. And so it was the combination of my um, loving story of isolating what's important, his awareness of, of the world around him and, and, and of cooking that brought that out. You know, he told me this rabbit story. It was one of many stories he told me. But, but I thought, okay, this is an important moment. We need to isolate this and, and bring it up. Thomas, he's always talking about refinement, refinement, refinement. Let's talk about the tools that make refinement happen. So we have a, a little page called Tools of Refinement, the Xinhua, the Tammy. Um, so it was a combined, it really was a combined work. It was originally written in third person, uh, not from his voice. Um, that's how much I reported it rather than wrote it as a cookbook. And I think that's why it's valuable, is because it, it really gets his mind and a very good one. Uh, it, gets, it really gets the mind of a chef down. So who made the decision or, or suggested that you should take it to first person? Because now that seems so obvious that you want to leverage the celebrity of the chef. It was the uh, publisher, Ann Bramson. She okay. said, this, this has to be in Thomas's voice. It's, it, it was the result of a very lucky pairing of two similar, similarly minded people. Um, my capacity to articulate ideas that were very exciting to me and that I could run with. Um, you know, the killing of rabbits and what that really means. Um, his development as a chef and what he cared about. I remember there was a point we were working in the cookbook. Sorry for, for pausing so long. Remember it, we're cooking in his kitchen in his house. We're making the uh, sabayon tart. And he's trying to figure out what to flavor the, uh, the creme fraiche or the cream, whatever cream uh, went on top. And then he said, let's flavor it with honey. And he looked at me and he said, why did I choose honey? And I said, tea. And that's when I knew I was thinking like him. He, that's how he, he pairs things. Look, what are, what are good, well-known pairings? Honey, lemon and, lemon and honey go in tea. So that's when I knew that we are really on a, a similar wavelength. And I felt very lucky to be there. Okay. So, I mean, French Laundry, very much a high-end chef's book. And then you kicked off a, a very different trend with charcuterie, which, you know, is 
a real DIY kind of uh, thing. Not only something that, I mean, lots of, lots of cookbooks obviously are about, hey, why don't you make this? But here's something that's particularly deadly, as you, as you said earlier, particularly uh, built on fat and salt. How did that flow from the other? Um, that flowed from me only. Um, that's something that I happen to be passionate about, that I cared about. I don't like the word passion. I wish I hadn't said that. Um, that I, lo- I love the idea that we created this extraordinary food not to appreciate it for our own you know, gratification, but for the survival of our species, and that we hardly knew anything about it. It was going away. Well, all we had in America was Oscar Mayer salami, which is cooked. Um, and so, but I didn't know anything about charcuterie. I never write books because I know everything about it. I write books because I don't know anything about it. That's, what, that's why I write a book, it's to discover things, not because I want to convey something I already figured out. And this was something I wanted to explore, and I just met a very interesting character for a story I was writing, Brian Polson, who taught charcuterie, had been hired to teach charcuterie at Schoolcraft College. And, uh, in Michigan, outside Detroit, and um, I called him and said, I knew I needed help with recipes, and I, I hate recipes, and I, you know, I, I, I give a shit about recipes, but I needed them for this book because people needed to follow them, and so, and he had them, he also had the expertise, and I, we could work together, and I could use my, my love of a subject and my, my ability to um, romanticize it and have fun with it combined with his knowledge of it and my ability to ask questions and to learn the craft myself from somebody who already knew it but couldn't quite articulate it writing it down the way I could and that's how charcuterie came about. Alright so why, why do you hate recipes so much? I hate recipes because we are so reliant on them. Recipes are not bad. Um, I hate our reliance, our reliance on them, and therefore I preach against them and the need for them. I think if you need a recipe, if you need to follow recipes, then um, you, you've gone down the wrong path. If you already know how to cook and don't need a recipe, but want a specific recipe for like your mom's old meatballs, well then a recipe is good. I've got a recipe for meat dumplings, which I tried, which are part of my family history. They were an epic fail. I completely screwed it up. The recipes were written in hand by my great-grandmother. The dough was a potato flour dough wrapped around cooked ground meat. It was basically a way to use leftovers. Completely fucked it up, and it really pissed me off. So that you know, recipe I really wanted did not serve me well. Um, to write a perfect recipe would take um, a book in itself. To How can you possibly get all the nuances of... of even, you know, I use in, the, in my book 20, I use the example, give me a recipe for buttered toast. You'd think that would be pretty simple. Well, what kind of bread are you using? How cold is the bread? What kind of knife do you use? How thick do you cut it? How do you know when it's done? I mean, how, how hot is your toaster? I don't know how hot your toaster is. How, how, how cold is the butter that you're using? If it's really cold, well, you know, you're gonna, you gotta, it's not going to be perfect buttered toast because you're going you're gonna to hammer the toast. Um, so, I mean, so even with a recipe for buttered toast, it's impossible to write accurately for it. That'll work in every situation. So that's why I hate recipes, because so they're useless. If you're going to make food at all, you need to start developing the intuitive 
sense of it. Yes, and recipes can't give you an intuitive sense of that. And until you have an intuitive sense of cooking and a basic understanding of the way cooking works, then no amount of recipes are going to help you. Now, if you just are looking to get dinner on the table because you know cooking your own food is important for you and your family, great. You know, go to fine cooking, follow the recipe, get dinner on the table. No problem with that. that. That's when recipes are good. That's when they're useful for people. For a mom, single mom, mother of two, gets home from work, just wants something nutritious, wants the kitchen to smell good, wants her kids to be happy and healthy. That's when I like recipes. Okay. All right. And then there's schmaltz. Now, I met... That's a good phrase. And then there's schmaltz. And then there was schmaltz. <laughs> Uh, you know, I met uh, Jennifer McCloggan a while back who wrote uh, Fat and Bones, sure. but I think even she wouldn't dare to pitch a book called Schmaltz. <laughs> well, we didn't pitch a book called Schmaltz either. We published it ourselves because I didn't think anybody would be interested in it, but I was, and I should have listened to myself more. Um, but we also wanted to experiment with this publication, a new kind of publication given. I, you know, I, I want new things. I get bored very easily, and so I wanna, I'm always interested in, in doing new stuff. And, um, and it was, turned out to be a great idea. Little Brown said, this is a great idea. You know, no one's, no one's ever done it. Even the, the, the paragons of Jewish cuisine never touched it. Joan Nathan and Arthur Schwartz and, and, and others, they, you know, they took, you know they, they, they took the party line. Fat's bad. Use vegetable oil. No. Um, schmaltz was once the primary cooking fat of a large number of, of people, of the Ashkenazi Jews. And it's what holds them together. And for a culture and a religion that is so, that understands so well the importance of community and staying together. This is after years of persecution and pogroms and, and, and being... And being uh, too many things to name it's so awful that what the Jews have been through um, but because of that they understand community and sticking together and taking care of their own and Schmaltz was the one thing it was the one thing that they shared and so to lose that seems an, uh, an awful shame so I'm glad to be the goy that gave the fat back to the Jews <laughs> let my people eat Schmaltz <laughs> But I love Jewish culture. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by the culinary traditions that developed out of a history of poverty and, and movement. Um, you know, so you see a lot of liver, you see a lot of chicken, you see a lot of potatoes, you see a lot of eggs, uh, noodles. Uh, so it's fascinating to see a, a culinary history that was born of poverty. So yeah, talk about the the whole the ebook thing. What uh, you, you put out Schmaltz as a book for the iPad um, as an app as an app, not an ebook, an right. app. Yeah, which is why I can't get it autographed because it's on my iPad. <laughs> um, and you know, and then as you say, publisher wanted it after that. But what? what was well, your we thinking? hadn't we hadn't yet published it, so they said we we want to publish Schmaltz, and I said great, he said, but you can't publish it as an app. So well, why not? Because we want to publish it as a book. I said, well, it's done. We we got paid for it to be designed. I paid for it to be copy edited. We paid for a digital production of it, um, and it's an experiment. We're not gonna. I'm not just gonna give it to you. And they said, okay, we want it anyway. Just take it off the market during publication. I said, okay, fair enough. 
So um, uh, it's taken off three months before and three months after publication of the hardcover, and I'm delighted to do it because I want the book to do well. Um, but then I'm going to put it back up in February, and we're going to add to it because that's one of the fun things about digital is it's organic. It can grow. I can, you know, there's a, somebody who tweeted me about a fat wa- fat washed rye, schmaltz washed rye, wow. that they made a Gibson out of basically. Um, so I'm going to put a schmaltz cocktail in there. And someone was tweeted the other day about a pizza. I had a pizza post on my site. She said I use schmaltz in the dough and use chicken on the pizza. I'm kosher and. And I thought, okay, we can do a schmaltz pizza. Um, so I can add to the app where I can add to the book. And I like exploring the ways technology allows us to convey increasing amounts of information. Yeah, well, and also the fact that you can interact with with readers and get ideas and things like that. I love that. I love all the social media. I'm really a fan of it. I embraced it from the get-go and um, love Twitter. Answer, Do my best to answer all questions, whether they come into my email. My email is easily available. Um, I answer questions on Twitter. I'm still trying to get the hang of Facebook. I don't get Facebook, but I try. Um, I hear it's popular. Um I'd say it's what the kids are into now, but apparently it's not. (laughs) It's not. No, my daughter is 18, and it's you know she's rarely uses Facebook. It's all about texting now, and I don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, I got to watch my kids to see what I need to be aware of. Right, right. Last last uh, topic: food writing. Everybody eats and drinks, therefore everyone can be a food writer. Apparently, is the mentality out there. you went to culinary school to be a food writer, so therefore you have it up on everybody else. Um, I don't know. What do you think about the explosion of food writing, the shrinking of outlets unless you invent them for yourself, like apps about schmaltz? Um, everybody can't write about food, and there are many bad food writers. In fact, they're mostly bad food writers. Um, I drive a car, but I can't make a car. Um, just because you eat doesn't mean you can talk about how food is conceived, presented, served at a busy 200-seat restaurant. Um, I think, and I've written about this on my site, on a post called On Food Writing, and I did a single, a single another experiment, a rolling single, it was a 35-page essay how I got into food writing, basically, called The Main Dish. Um, you have to learn how to write first. Once you learn how to write, then you can write about anything. And if food happens to be the thing you care about, then you'll be able to write about food. But just because you care about food doesn't mean that you can therefore write about it. Writing's hard. Writing takes time. It took me 20 years to learn how to write. 20 years before I really figured out how sentences worked. From age 11 to about, well, no, till 27, 20, that's really 1990, 93. Oh, so 20 years. Yeah, 93 was when I, when, when something changed in me, when it was like the experience of you're walking along an airport terminal and then you get on a moving uh, walkway where you're suddenly moving much faster with much less work. That's how it felt. Suddenly I knew how it worked, but it took me 20 years to do that. And I start, or lucky I started early. I started in fifth grade. <laughs> Thank you.
The crowd at Belena that day for Michael Ruman included chefs from places like Publican Quality Meats, Perennial Verant, The Radler, which you heard about in the last episode, Nelcode and Old Town Social, West Loop Salumi, and other places which have charcuterie programs and, I would also bet, a copy of Ruhlman and Polson's book somewhere on their shelves. But Chicago has a lot of old-time charcuterie places, too, drawing on Eastern European sausage-making traditions, and they're always worth checking out as living links to old-world craftsmanship. Polina Meat Market in Roscoe Village has lots of good German-cured meats like summer sausage and Lanjagers. Jean's Sausage Shop in Lincoln Square is another good one, and so is Schmeisser's Sausage and Meats up in Niles. They all have good fresh sausages and some cured meats. Andy's Deli up on Milwaukee Avenue has lots of Polish-style sausages, and though they may not know to call them farm-to-table, they buy from a lot of old-fashioned farms in the area which raise meat the old pre-industrialized way. Turning to Italian sausage, Bari in Westtown makes a great Baresi sausage, which is thinner than the usual Italian sausage and has lamb in it. Uh, Riviera on Harlem Avenue makes their own in-house soppressata, which is terrific. And just west of town, there are two great small-town meat markets well worth a visit. Reams in Elburn has an amazing variety of fresh sausages and makes a good in-house finocchiona and other things like that. While Dre Miller and Cray in Hampshire has a 1930s-era smokehouse where they make great bacon and other meats. I'll have links for all of these in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. But that's just a start. Look around the city. There's a lot of charcuterie out there. I'm going to take a road trip in the next segment. But first, if you travel a lot, these podcasts are great for listening to on the road or while eating airline food. So please, subscribe at iTunes. That's the best way to encourage me to keep it going. And if you like them or have an idea for a story or whatever, let me know at skyfullofbacon.com. If there's one place that American charcuterie achieves the depth of tradition and flavor of European meats, it's in the southern culture of ham-making. This summer, my sons and I drove three hours west of Louisville to the picturesque small town of Princeton, Kentucky. Our destination was right there on Main Street, a 19th century brick building identified with a painting of a pig and the sign, Newsom's Aged Country Hams. It's a tiny store with wooden floors and a meat counter and old wooden shelves packed with only in the country specialties like Mayha or corncob jelly. Owner Nancy Newsom Mahaffey, or as everyone knows her, the ham lady, invites us over to the counter. We're going to start off here by sampling our prosciutto hams which is an aged ham. It is. It has had a major water loss of over 37%. Uh, my hams lose more weight due to the way that we age them with the ambient weather. And uh, we work our ventilation fans off and on depending on the weather and so forth. And uh, a lot of commercial producers today don't do that. A lot of commercial producers today have uh, climate control year round. See, they make hams at all times of year. We start them in January just like the old timers did. 
so that when they're coming out of the salt, they're going into the air for spring, and they gradually warm and drip dry, and then the salt equalizes within six weeks into the ham. And uh, then after that, we continue to hang them, then we smoke them by use of an old iron kettle. We don't pump in any smoke. We actually go in there with the smoke, build a fire like an Indian does. But the other, we're gonna, you're gonna sample prosciutto ham at 19 months old, and I don't have any cooked country right now, but you're gonna sample also the barbecue ham, it's called, or its nickname is the preacher ham, nicknamed by a customer of ours over 30 years ago. It's considered the best ham for the preacher on Sunday. So that's what was done. So I'll, we'll get that worked up. All right, thank you. The preacher ham is a fine wet ham, but the prosciutto, ruby orange looking more like salmon than ham, has the deep funk and tang that can only come from aging ham for months. And, one is tempted to say, making ham for generations. It was a general store when my grandfather started it. He sold some hardware. He sold... Uh, Main, his main money thing was garden seed and plants. I learned that he even shipped plants over to Canada. How you doing? You doing all right? Did you get paid for them? Okay. My grandfather also sold groceries. He sold uh, pickles in barrels, sugar in barrels, molasses in barrels that was poured into a heavy sack and taken home and put into their own containers. Um, but he was known as the Garden Seed and Plant Man. His name was H.C. Newsom, so we've maintained H.C. Newsom story. Then, after when my, my granddad died at age 49, and uh, my father was 18, and he had an 18-month-old baby brother and another brother that was like eight or nine. So he took over the business, and he ran it. My granddad ran it from 1917 to 1933, and dad ran it from 1933 to 1987. His father always cured hams, but not necessarily selling the store because in that day, everybody cured their own. Then when my father started seeing that, that farmers were beginning to quit curing their own, he started curing them. Two-thirds of my business is mail order, my gross sales. And we started, our, uh, our mail order was started for us in 1975 by James Beard, our father of gourmet cooking. So then I introduced the free range ham. Um, I, I was among the first producers to put a free range ham on the internet uh, to offer a free range aged ham from rare breed animals, antibiotic and growth hormone free. And then after that was when I uh, started creating the market for, well, the prosciutto market was beginning to, it was really pushing me to do do something, the restaurant business was. How did James Beard originally hear about this? How did this get on the radar? A lady who was from originally from Princeton had read one of his cookbooks in which he highlighted a particular person's, you know, a particular business's aged hams, and she wrote him a letter and told him that uh, if he hadn't had Colonel Bill's, if he hadn't had hit Dad's hams, that he hadn't had a good ham. And so he ordered from him. He called him. After James Beard's death, they called Dad and said he was such a big advocate of your hams, just wondered, you know, could you tell us anything about the man? He said, well, really all we ever talked about was hams. <laughs> so he said, I can't really tell you, you know, anything other, you know, he probably told him a few things. The preacher ham is cooked, but a true country ham is raw, and you have to boil it to make it soft enough to eat. 
Nancy brings out a country ham, a hunk of dark purple meat that looks as hard as varnished oak. So that's aged country ham. See those aging specks in that? But you see, one of the prominent things about ours is how prominently hard it gets on the edge. That's because we hand rub each one of these hams a long time. Yeah. If you're using nitrate, all you have to do is douse it around in the salt and pass it on. But for us, we have to hand rub so this it begins the salt penetration into the ham. We use a very old cure that's a Virginia-style cure uh, that uh, involves salt and brown sugar only, no nitrates. And then the country ham, how long does it get? Well, we start selling them at 10 months with the bulk of them sold at one year and later. Okay. And then the, 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 they, uh, this year the crop will last till they're 20 months old or 21 months old. But those were all pre-sold and held for people right after Christmas and tagged with their names on them. And those will be ready in October. That's but I don't, when right. you say ready, it, that's, a, that's something that ready for I, sale. on hand with people, like to determine with them as to what age of ham that they really need by talking with them and discovering, you know, whether how much of a they know about the product they're getting, number one, and, and what age they like their hams. That's something they have to discover with us about what month they really want to get, us, get it from us. Okay. And then the prosciutto would be from early 2012, that's... The prosciutto, it depends on how much weight loss they take. I do a shrinkage test a couple of times on them to know uh, how much weight loss they have. And typically most of those are sold uh, 14 months and older. Most of them. And so, and the ham, so where are the hams right I'll now? I'll take you to We go out the front and walk down the hill the store and all of Main Street sits on. I don't have steps down to it because I don't want it too easily accessible for the general <laughs> public, okay? I'm going to take you in here where it starts first, okay? And I should so note that as soon as we came around the corner, there was just this ham smell in the where air. Where was it? But just right as we walked here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's shut the door when we get in. Okay. Because, okay, this is our newer facility. Uh, doesn't look like you put this much money in. I mean, that, but it's got a lot of had a lot of money put into it. These doors here, a thousand dollars a door. Uh, they're wide doors, and they're already. You see, you can tell so the salt in the air is already beginning to rust. That has concrete wall behind it. Behind that is slab limestone and 1850 uh, brick. But we bring the hams in by truck early in the morning. There's about six or eight. There's, I worked with them every day they worked this year. I closed the store on those days. I figured it was, this was a new venture for them. And, and you know, they got in this new facility. They really didn't know how to act when they first got in this one, you know because they're so used to the other one. I mean, Lonnie up there has been around as long as I have, and he, he, uh, they needed extra help. I didn't know, I thought, how am I gonna get enough help to do this, you know? And uh, 
uh, I prayed about it and the Lord blessed me with more help than I could use. We'll come on out of this room. Hope y'all aren't allergic to mold. We enter the main ham room. You know the kind of used bookstore where books stretch up to the ceiling and there's barely room to squeeze between and look at the titles? This is like that for hams. These hams like this. If you were to do this on a huge, huge, huge scale, because of the kind of shrimp you take, most producers only take 18% to begin with, which is what the federal government allows, and then they maintain them at close to a certain temperature so they don't lose weight very fast. And mine, by the time I get done selling them, and I've already had a loss rate of 24 to 34% at nine months. I'm not talking about 12 months or 14 months or, you know, so. But it's a lot. It, it, it's for me as a, a single woman trying to take care of a business. Uh, Somebody said, uh, what are you going to do, do when you fill this house? Talking about that one over there. I said, uh, well, I don't know. I might be retired by then. <laughs> but we must have to see. Now I'll take you in here and show you something. Let me get the light on. I'm going to shock these boys. Come on in. got to shut the door behind you. Hey, this room shocked me. Here's row after row of hams covered in gray mold, great Civil War beards of mold hanging off them. They look like death. And yet, they're all sold. In fact, that's why it's legal to let them grow so much mold. They're already sold, so the customer can do whatever he wants with them, including leave them with Nancy to hang and age some more. This is all I have left of last year's crop right here. The reason why they are so, so, uh, moldy and gray with mold like they are guys is they wouldn't they, they would be this way but not quite this this heavy with it except that i transferred molds from one ham house to another so the old ham house on highland has the molds that were that came from an old family smokehouse out on a farm that had been there since 1800 and something or late 1700s so we used that smokehouse then when my father brought his hams to town he inoculated that house by bringing those aged hams in with those molds and then i in turn brought the molds down here and they were in there with hams that were damp so that made for more of what you see here they picked up the more dampness but they would be they would be similar to this anyway but not quite this heavy but once you get all that cleaned off, guys, it's, it's a beautiful mahogany color. This was the way that they used to do meat before the days of refrigeration when they, they just didn't have, you know, uh, they had, might have what they called a spring house that was over a spring that had a building over it where it, it at least kept something a little bit cooler. And these aged hams, if, if I cut one right now and left this room, and had the face of it covered with some meat grease where the insects couldn't penetrate it or something like that, I could be gone six months and come back and it probably would still be good. You'd cut the face off of it and go on. That sounds gross, but it's the truth. Yeah. This is why they had salted meats, guys. Because this is something that I'm maintaining that is kind of like I'm preserving heritage, okay? It's kind of like it's not as much 
I mean, I need money to live and to pay my health insurance and stuff, but it's, it's kind of more like preservation for me because our family, when we came to Virginia in 1634, uh, we started learning how to cure hams shortly thereafter, took that process through North Carolina, and wound up in, in Caldwell County here in Kentucky in 1823. So we've all, our family's always cured hams, so. Okay, now this is the house we have to go in in a hurry, okay, guys? Okay. Why? Because she doesn't want to let yeah, different air Yeah, I'm going to build out. a breezeway with double-screened breezeway. I don't do it. Oh. So I'm not going to do it. Okay, y'all go in. Quick. Hurry up. And now we're in ham heaven here. A wall of smoke and ham fat smell hits us and immediately soaks into our clothing and hair. We're in the smokehouse dark as a coal mine, mahogany hams hanging clustered like bats in a cave. That's my kettle I smoke hams in. So you just put them in there and then put it on no, top uh, of the... Okay. No, we build a, build a smoke with a green hickory. Oh, so you build the, fire, the smoke in there and it does yeah. the whole... And we, the then, whole we put green, then we put uh, sawdust over it and... Uh, and it smokes the whole building. You can't see your hand in front of your face when the time we get done. And then this is part I learned on my own. Everybody thinks my father took me by the hand and taught taught it all to me. My father was older, and he was a man of few words. He uh, certain times when he was younger, he was like me, had the gift of gab. But he was uh, 73 when he gave up the business, but I was learning how to do it. I started working with the men in the ham house years ago. I started working with them about thir- uh, 35 years ago in the, in the ham house. So I just went in there dressed like that and went and picked my daughter up from school dressed like that and whatever I had to do. Because I, I was the only sibling in town and I figured if something happened to my father, it would fall on me. My brother was a civil, uh, chemical engineer working for EPA, and so uh, I thought, well, if something happens to Dad, I got to know what to do with these hams. <laughs> so I started learning it. It wasn't my endeavor to take over his business. Uh, it just worked out that way. Newsom's Country Hams is at 208 East Main Street in Princeton, Kentucky, or on the internet at newsomscountryhams.com. I tried to paint pictures and audio, but you can see photos by me and my son Miles of what it all looked like at skyfullofbacon.com. I've also got a post about how I like to cook country ham, which I do every Thanksgiving. Matthias Murgis was a chef's chef for 14 years at Charlie Trotter's. Then he burst into the awareness of diners with You Show, which for a while you couldn't open a food magazine without seeing. 
That take on Japanese bar food was followed by the hipster Americana Billy Sunday, also in the Logan Square area. But Murgis' next spot will be a European kind of bistro called A10 down in Hyde Park. In fact, the only thing Murgis and his wife and architectural partner Rachel Crowell don't seem to want to open is a fine dining spot like Charlie Trotter's. I spoke with Murgis at U-Show a while back about what he got from Trotter's and why it didn't lead him to open his own four-star restaurant. When I decided to leave Trotter's, you know, there, there was a big expectation for me to do something high-end and to do something in the fine dining realm. And I thought that would be like the easy, easy way to go because I know how to do it. I've been in it. It, was, it seemed like it was a, a natural progression. And I, I thought it was, a, it was too easy for me. And I wanted to, to take some of the truths of fine dining, like attention to detail and great service and you know, knowledgeable service, you know, well thought out and thoughtful wine and beverage program, crafty cuisine. And I think that all those things in a, in a great environment I don't think those things need to be with a super high price tag. I think that people in general, they not only are they more savvy and educated about food and what the world of food and what revolves around it these days, so they expect a little bit more and more interesting, but not at the price point. I think that you can deliver those things at something which is more fun and interesting and you don't need to get the suit and tie on to go to it and you can come in twice a week and you still can get those same kind of experiences at a much reduced price point. Okay. So do you think as you thought about it, was it was it more marketing driven? Was it more your own interest driven or that was definitely more interest I mean, we don't do anything that is mark driven. I mean that that's like why why would we do that? We're more of these are some of the great things we've seen and that we really enjoyed traveling through Asia and spending time in Japan and, you know, things that really turned us on. And I think that Yusho is a, is a hybrid of all those things. And I think that it's, you know, like they say, we, we, don't, we don't have any Japanese working here. And we're in Chicago and I'm a white guy. And I think that it's important that it's, a, it's an expression from us. So the food is unique. You know, our, our take on cocktailing and beverage is unique, and I think that that's what, you know, sets us apart from the pack of who's doing, like, sushi and maki rolls and the traditional Japanese, what people think of Japanese restaurants. That's not us. Okay. Was that food that you had been making at any point before then? Or, I mean, it, certainly there was an Asian influence sure. in Trotter, but not, I, I wouldn't say it was anywhere near to this extent. No, I wouldn't say that it's... It, I was doing anything that we're doing now then. I think that respecting product and looking for great product is always a hallmark of what we've always done and the way we, we looked at cooking as a craft. But I think that when you, you can take these influences and have fun with them. You know, at Trotters, it was, you know, what it was a great experience. It was, you know, we were able to like just refine it to such a level which was great but here we take it and we have we have way more fun with it for sure and we 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 try to make it exciting and loud and flavorful and 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 interactive and you know things that you can eat with your hands and things that you need chopsticks and things that you need a spoon so we we looked at all those things and how to make them more playful and that's what you show is so you weren't frying chicken for staff meal and uh, oh, sure. dusting it with nori powder? And uh, we would, I would say that there were, it was not a test bed for what we do here, but looking back, there's always those kind of influences. Like, 
you know, for staff meal, um, you know, the way it worked at Trotters is that different stations would have different components of staff meal, but I always like to get into the, into the mix even when I was executive chef or executive operations, I would come in for like one day a month or whatever it may be, and I would make staff meal for everyone. And it would be like udon, or I would do ramen, or I would do, you know, fried chicken, or whatever it may be. Just to, it's a, that's like the nature of the beast. And I think that some of those things carry over, but nothing was like, ah, remember that? Let's do that now. Because I think that the food needs to always evolve. And one thing I always said, you know, and I still say today, to you know, all the cooks or people I've worked with before is that we never want to repeat a dish. We never go back to the, the drawing board and say, well, we did this like seven months ago. Why don't we just bring that back and do that again? Because that's, you know, that's not what we do. We're going to be more creative. We want to challenge ourselves, and that's not really fun. So, okay. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, Trotter was supposed to never make the same thing two nights in a row. Correct. I'm sure things were, this is what we did yesterday differently because I, as I was making it I exactly. thought about this but here you you certainly keep things on the menu longer yes. but, so what's the evolution how's that happen um, seasonality there's things that people just love here that when we take them off we, we find like this is almost like a riot you know and I think that there's there's an accessibility to things and there's like a, this just a reality to it um, that there's certain things that we want to maintain that we think that that speak really highly and people can expect that's a different thing between you know fine dining and doing something like you show is that when you have regulars come in twice a week that some things they they always ask for they want those things because it's a it's a comfort it's something that they look forward to once a week or whatever it may be so we keep things like the ramen the pigtail crispy pigtail with the poached egg and the pickled cucumbers and so those kind of things we look at, but I they say that 80% of the menu is changing constantly. I think that uh, depending on seasonality and what we get in the market or what we feel like we want to do. So. And I felt like there was a moment when I was writing Grub Street that anytime someone from out of town was going to say what was hot in Chicago, you know, you yeah. show you show was there. It was, yeah. it was sort of it was kind of Asian, like right. so many of the hot things of the moment are. Right. Um, so that was that was a lucky accident, or what do you? What I don't do you know. Think? Well, I think that it's just we didn't we didn't look at trend. We didn't really feel. We felt really connected to it, and I think it's it's kind of like the taco thing. I you know you look at like Big Star and they, they they exploded on the scene, right? And now everybody is opening up a taco place, you know. And I think it's great. I love tacos, but it, you know I think that it, when we when we opened you show. You know, I, when we first sat around the table, and this was two and a half years ago, we said to ourselves, well, what is you show? And, you know, the first rule I sat down, I said to everybody, I'm like, you show will not serve maki rolls, and we will not do sushi. And from that point on, we were able to formulate and to really look into what, what it meant to us. And I think that that's why it differentiated ourselves between us and others doing Japanese food. And I don't know if we just hit it at the right time, but there... But I would I would agree that there there's there was momentum at the time of other people doing some interesting stuff. Um, you know, we didn't really look at that when we opened up, nor do we really look at that now. I think that we've really kind of defined our path and how and our formula to evolve within it. Um, but I think yeah, I don't think that we we looked at it as a trend. 
I'm sitting there just saying, I'm going to be David Chang. No, Chicago. no. <laughs> yeah, everybody asks that, like, where's your information? Did you go to, you know, I can honestly say, I think I totally respect David Chang. I think that the guy's brilliant in so many ways. I've never eaten any of his restaurants. Oh, really? Ever. You know, and I think that I, that's my fault. I haven't been to New York in a long time, but I mean, it's, you know, he is, he's brilliant, you know, but I think it, what they do and what we do is much different from yeah, each other. Yeah. You know, yeah, not, not least being Jap- more Japanese than Chinese. Well, exactly. I think that we do our, our, you know, our beverage program, what we do, our, you know, our cocktailing, it's a, it's just a little, it's much different from what, what they do. So. Well, I also think of something like Sumi Robata Bar. I mean, there's certainly similarities in terms sure. of just doing very precise, oh, you yeah. know, careful, well-made food, but very much within a specific historical model. True. You know, and he wants to honor that, you know, explicitly wants to honor that model and represent yeah. it well, where you're, you know, you're sort of riffing on what... Yeah, that, what that's exactly right. I, I mean, those guys, you know, Sumi is awesome. For what they do, they, they knock it out of the ballpark. Their, their technique... Their focused detail, you know, the way they do things is very Japanese and it's, it's executed very well. Um, and it's very serious. What we do is very not serious, you know, and I think that it's, that's one thing that I love about it is that we have fun with it. We're not, we're not tied down to trying to, I guess, um, not manipulate, but replicate um, what we've seen in Japan. That's not our. That's not our intent. Our intent is to wow. Remember that kind of crazy pancake we had? Why don't we just do something like with that <laughs> idea, and we'll just do this, or you know, it, those kind of things. Like ramen. Why do we need to do what they do? Why don't we just take a noodle dish and just put things in it that we love to eat? That makes sense, you know. If it's like the ramen with the crispy pigtail and. You know the the egg, which is which is traditionally egg, but the way we make our broths and the way it's combined, they don't do that. That's why everybody comes. You know, not everybody, but some traditional people come in and they're like, they're like, well, we thought we'd get like ramen, like traditional ramen. I go, well, this is a noodle soup. This is what we do. It's not traditional ramen, but try it. You know, it's good. And I think some people are taken aback by that, but at the end of the day, at the end of the experience, they're like, wow. That's not what I expected, but it was pretty damn good, yeah. you know. Okay, so a philosophy of being not serious was that—is that a rebellion against being a trotter for? So no, years it's or? not. It's not a rebellion. It is. It's just you just can't take life too seriously, because it, it, it it's very. Um, it, when you when you. Trotters was like, you know, let me, I'll go back to it, but, you know, Trotters was like the one restaurant in the past 25 years that redefined what dining is in America. Some people say no, some people say I think it did. You know, the first people to, Charlie was the first person to put like the kitchen table in the kitchen. First person to do the station menus. First person to bring wine pairings. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But it's very, very focused and narrow expression of what it is. You need to like brush some of that off. I need to have fun. I need to have enjoyment. And you need to. How do you take when you go to Trotters and you sit down at the table and your your mind is blown by the food and the service and the wine? How do you take something at this level at this price point and have someone's mind blown 
by the service, by the food, by the beverage here at Yusho. That was kind of like the whole idea. It's like, what, what does that mean and how do we do that? And I think that it's by, you know, like the skin tasting. That's a, that's a perfect example of like, when we first started using the skin here, it's like we thought, well, we'll do like, let's, let's see what the Japanese do. Let's do it, let's eat it, let's see what it's like. And we're like, wow, this is really good. But you know, this is kind of boring for me. And one day we're like, not only are we gonna serve one skin, why don't we do like five different kinds of skins and put them like a bouquet of flowers in this like pot, you know, like a you know, pot you find flowers in and serve it as a, as, as a dish rather than like an accompaniment like most people do where it's a crispy salmon skin on top of a piece of salmon with some sauce, you know, yeah. that formula. Why not break that out and break that mold and have fun and say, wow, look at this. You know, let's blow your mind this way with using just skin, which people throw away. I'm like, that's just, to me, that's what, that's what epitomizes what you show us about, is those kind of things, where we're, we see this one little thing and then we take it way left field. You show is at 2853 North Kedzie in Logan Square. A second one will open on 53rd Street around the end of the year. You can find another part of this interview focusing on his Hyde Park projects at The Reader. Thanks to my guests, Michael Ruman, plus Belena and the Door PR for making it possible, Nancy Newsom Mahaffey, and Matthias Merges. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back in a few weeks with a return visit from Anthony Todd. At least that's the plan. More info at skyflowbacon.com. Subscribe at iTunes. This was Episode 5.